All right, this is the Shalone Kaysen Show, and I normally do mental prayer on this podcast, but I also do interviews from time to time. And today I have an interview with a great person here that I know personally, and uh, he will tell you more about himself. And of course, I am Shalone Kaysen, the host, and I'm interviewing Raf Collado. Hey, uh, good morning or afternoon. I don't know when this is going to... Well, whenever they watch it. All right, there you go. So, hi. How's that? Hi. Uh, happy to be here with you, Shalom. Really, it's uh, it's neat. I've uh, I've listened to your stuff for quite some time, your podcast, and uh, I'm honored to be here with you. All right, great. So, uh, the first thing we do uh, for these interviews is just try to get a quick overview, like a bird's eye view. If you could do, and it doesn't have to be a minute exactly, but if you could, could just kind of give a synopsis of your life, uh, like a one minute, somebody's watching the trailer of the movie of your life, what would it say? Gotcha. Well, uh, I was originally born in the uh, South Bronx back in the mid 50s, uh, grew up there, went to school there, was uh, uh, attended parochial schools over there, which is pretty good. Got out of Cardinal Spellman. Uh, one of my classmates there was. Uh, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, for whatever that's worth, uh, along with a couple of other people, uh, majored uh, in engineering over at uh, Polytechnic at NYU, and then just worked for a while as a software engineer all across the country. Uh, when I became, when I reached, when I was about 28, my late 20s, I decided that I wanted to go off on my own, so I started a uh, computer communications company. Took that public a couple of years after I started it, and uh, that's what I've been doing ever since. Just a matter of starting companies, taking them, you know, selling them or doing whatever. And now I'm here in uh, Virginia, living in Chesapeake, and hanging out with uh, the great Shalom Kaysen. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Awesome. So the next thing we're going to do is kind of go in a little bit deeper on different kind of time periods. And you can... Um, insert or omit whatever you want it's your you know it's your interview you're in control so don't feel obligated to say any particular thing but let's start when you're younger if is there any additional details we can go into things that people would be interested in such as like you went to parochial schools or anything about your parents let's start there and and go from there all right well you know my parents were great inspiration they were very focused on discipline and education, so they scrimped and saved. I have three younger brothers, so they put the four of us through, from the time we were very young, through parochial schools. Uh, I went to a couple of them. I went to uh, St. Catherine of Siena uh, in Manhattan. Then after that, uh, I went to a place called Monsignor Kelly, which was an interesting little school. Um, and then to Cardinal Spellman High School, which I graduated from. Uh, so it was good. I mean, I think that was very important to them. My parents were, uh, in many cases, very similar to uh, what you do, Shalom. I mean, you know, my dad was very, very much involved in the church. He was a lector, and he, you know, did all sorts of stuff for it, spent a lot of time. And most of my growing up, again, interestingly enough, because I see it in, you know, you and your family, was pretty much around the church. I mean, we went to church. We spent a lot of time in church. It was pretty, it was actually pretty interesting now that I reflect on it because, uh, you know, the CYO, there was all sorts of things going on. We were pretty much uh, constantly there. I mean, that's where we went to picnics. It was the whole social thing. All my friends were there. So, uh, but I think at that time period in the late 50s uh, through the early 70s, it was more, it was a uh, social 
as much as it was religious because okay. it was just that was where everyone went. That's where right, they were. Right. You know, went to school with these people, went to church with these people, and played with these people and hung out with them. So, uh, and I think it was very good. I think it gave me a a, a good foundation for um, both from values and everything else that uh, you know that's missing today. I see it in what you do, but I think in general it's missing. Right. So was there any particular person uh, in that time period that you wanted to highlight that maybe kind of, other than your parents, of course, you already mentioned them, that kind of molded you and made you think of, oh, I want to go this way or that way? I think it was mostly, honestly, was my my parents, my dad in particular. My mother was a homemaker, but my dad was, uh, uh, he, he was pretty studious he had had you know he had uh, advanced uh, degrees in physics and engineering uh, phd all of those kinds of things so um so he was that and he was and he was also very you know very determined about what he wanted for uh, his kids so he uh, he put that uh, forward out there uh, in terms of um just a commentary that i'd like to make uh because a lot of people had a different experience and i recognize that their experience was different uh, in those times is I was very fortunate that the religious that I came across were mm-hmm. unbelievable people. I mean, unbelievable people, particularly in, in the parish. I mean, the priests were, I mean, and again, I'm not taking away from anybody that, of things that have happened. So, you know, going into denial is, right, not, right. is not the right thing because it happened. It clearly did. And, you know, people went through, were, went through horrible stuff. But I was very fortunate that the priests I spent time with were extraordinary people i mean i there's a lot of admiration for example uh and there was a lot of stuff not said about them because they because of who they were like one of them in particular is father louis giganti was very was very um important to me and he was a uh, i admired him tremendously um he was and and the reason is because the reason i say he's extraordinary is because these were people these priests that didn't have to be where they were, didn't right. have to do what they were doing because they had tremendous options. I mean, this, these aren't people who became priests because there was nothing they could do. They had no life. Right, whatever. right. An example is, and they did, and it did cause problems for them. The reason I single out Father Giganti is because he is one of the people, gets doesn't get much credit for this, but who single-handedly practically brought the Bronx back from disaster. Oh, if wow. you ever go to the Bronx and you're driving by on the Bruckner, because you'll see it says Sebco Houses, Father Louis G- or Louis Giganti or whatever, and he founded Sebco, which I, th- I oh. forget what it's a Southeast Bronx something or other development corp. And, and he was able to do it because of the guy he was. Now, he was a guy who was an all-star, played basketball, all-star at Georgetown. Wow. And the interesting part about his family is his brother was Vincent the Chin Giganti, who is the head of the Lucchese crime family. Oh, So that's why I'm saying that that he didn't have to. He could have become a lawyer. He could have gone into the family business. He could have gone in any direction. He could have gone into the family business and would have But meanwhile, he works in a poor parish. Or put up poor, but you know, lower middle class parish with you know lots of needs in there, caring about these people. And frankly, everyone would say the scuttlebutt was, well, you know, he's all mobbed up. His brother is a mobster, and right, and they right. accused him of you know because and you know again, 
I can't, I won't judge that, but I know the man and, and well, he's serving as a conduit to see, cause he's a priest. So he could see his brother in jail. <laughs> all right. Well, they're, they're, all they're, the conspiracies. They're, they're going all these conspiracies, but what the guy did do, the guy didn't need to be there. In other words, to be a priest, he didn't need to be there. Right. That's why I admired him because he was a guy mm. who could be rich, couldn't be, you know, eminently powerful and whatever. Meanwhile, he's sitting in a rectory in St. Athanasius, you know, right. on Hunts Point Avenue with all these people, like, you know, and he was continually, he started some feasts where he blocked off the name, the, the, the streets on Tiffany in the neighborhood. Okay. Modeled after the San Gennaro that the Italians had downtown. No one hmm. had done that before there. So right. he, you know, uh, you know, these feasts of, you know, with the, with the saints coming out and all oh, stuff. Oh, wow. And he had, and... Because of who he was, he had, you know, uh, he got great acts to come because it turned out he was the priest for Tito Puente's mother. Wow. So That's when he wanted entertainment, basically, I remember one time I was talking to Tito Puente when I was, you know, as a teenager. And he goes, well, he's here. He goes, well, I'm here because my mother is nagging me. I got to come <laughs> and I got to get my friends. So this is the kind of guy he was. And I'm not just talking about him. But there's other priests so I'll talk in a second. But um but so that was very inspirational. In addition, the reason he was, there was a lot of, even then, there was a lot of gangsters and bad people in that. And I'll never forget that um, Father Giganti was, you know, he would be walking the streets. So people said, of course, nothing's going to happen. If you think anybody's going to touch him, they touch him and you'll right. wind up. It's going to be a problem. <laughs> so, so, and when it came time to rebuilding the Bronx, you know, people were not breaking stuff or stealing stuff because, you know, it, you know again, I don't think he ever went that way right had a, but, he didn't have a direct connection no, but, but he no, had but he some of the but, influence yeah but I, I think he wouldn't have wanted that but i think it didn't matter because yeah. it's his brother right you so, can't disconnect yourself you know, so what happens is so i thought that was pretty and it didn't really hit me till i got older and understood what that meant because right, right. Well, you know well yeah his brother is a gangster but it didn't hit me that no he's not just a gangster this guy is the head he's vincent the chin gigantic you know, he's the head of a huge crime family. Wow. So no wonder, you know, Father G would, you know, walk down, you know, nobody's. Matter of fact, I'll tell you an interesting story. He was very close. Because my, my family, as I said, like, you know, spent a bunch of time in the church. I mean, that was right, like right. the central focus of our lives. Um, so what happened was I had a granduncle who was very old and he used to play guitar in at the masses. And he mm -hmm. was always there. And he was, there. and as a matter of fact, Father Giganti built a, senior citizens, old age home, one of the, mm -hmm. named it after him. Oh, wow. So anyway, but so apparently one day he got mugged. So, um, you know, it came out, he was, you know, the hospital and all of that. He was hurt, whatever. Anyway, um, it, it word went out on the street a couple of days later, all the money that was taken plus a brand new guitar. <laughs> Showed up at his doorstep. Oh wow! And it wasn't. He was just like one of those kinds of things that this is one. This is an important old guy who is friends with, you know. So it, it was kind of that. That was that was very strange. But anyway, he, you know, he is, uh, and you know, he's been around and he's a good guy. And as I said, he. Uh, so he was one of them. So right. I was very fortunate because I didn't have one. The other piece was a priest named Neil Connolly. Neil Connolly, similar thing, star athlete, you know, great guy, brilliant guy, mm -hmm. really smart guy. But uh, and he was. He was very important because he also had issues with, um, he cared about the parish and his people. Right, right. And he had issues with the church hierarchy. So he would, you know, get in there because they didn't want, they didn't want Giganti doing what Giganti was doing because he's supposed, you know, say mass, hear confessions, you're in there, 
rabble rousing. You know, starting right. Don't stuff. do all these but, other. But things. he wasn't alone because Neil Connolly was out there with whether it was wrench strikes or doing stuff with the police, or whatever. And he was an activist priest, not okay. a crazy activist. Because well, you know he was concerned about things that were going on in the parish, and uh, and he was actually marked for great things. As a matter of fact, uh, he was made a monsignor. Oh wow! Uh, but he continued to so basically they plucked him out of. They figured he's rabble rousing. Let's take him out of his base. So the archdiocese, the cardinal, like pulled him out and says, oh, we're going to put you somewhere else. But they didn't get the guy. He's just started. <laughs> he just started <laughs> so, doing it over there. Yeah. So, okay. so then, and, and, and actually what happened, it, I'm, I'm sure so, because actually he was made the vicar or something of the Bronx. Um. By the way, I apologize for that. I think they're oh, trying sorry. to call us. I think there was a caller who must have heard us and was trying to call in. Uh, <laughs> but uh, maybe they knew the father. Maybe they knew father. But in any event, so he was made the, like the vicar of the Bronx or something. Okay. Really high, you know, thinking like, well, this will keep him busy. But then he just organized the entire Bronx. Wow. Against, well, not against, but to advise the archdiocese that some of the madness they were doing. Yeah. By the way, it was all, it was prophetic because what he was telling them was what wound up ultimately causing major problems so he was one of the people who was ringing the alarm bell said you guys gotta wake up right because right. there was stuff happening that when it hits it's going to be bad and it but, hit in uh what i think it was oh five or oh three yeah, or so, something uh, yeah, with it, the it, spotlight so he, yeah, yeah yeah so exactly so he was like trying to tell him you gotta pull people gotta get pulled like yesterday right uh but they didn't listen to him and basically they they Monsignor, but now you're no longer in charge. They sent him to another, and you know, so he, you know, he tried his best. So again, great guy, a wonderful, a wonderful guy, really wonderful man, and uh, and he was very influential, you know. And he was, and these were pe these were not. I think it was a transitioning period because these were not priests, church, and right. really dogmatic about They're they, given the sacraments they were, and, and that's they were it. out in the, they were out in the streets right. out doing stuff as a matter of fact you know i saw them i remember one thing as a child that was very telling was one time i was walking in the street a couple about maybe a hundred feet 200 feet behind father giganti so i'm little so i'm trying to catch up with father giganti and this was made a huge impression to this day i still remember it he had this nice leather jacket At the time, we called them bums, but it was probably a homeless person comes up to him and he's talking to Father Giganti. And then I watched something which was extraordinary. He takes off his leather coat, gives it to the guy, and just keeps walking. Now, this is something that I was the only person there, right. you know, witnesses. It, was, it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to do this. So yeah. people, he. There's no he, one to see. And he just kept walking like it was nothing. And it was cold, and he just gave this guy his coat, and, you know, that was that. And I don't even know, I didn't even know what conversation they had so i don't even right. know what they said because i was too far away to see it i just wow. so it made an impression because i'm saying this this is not an act these people are really and i saw neil Connolly do that so other priests uh that i had not directly one of them father adams again uh i, I bumped into him much later in life um and by the way father adams to to also be totally true that father adams did enjoy his but beer and wine. So he was, hey, he, I was, mean. He, was, he enjoyed it. He was like, you know, he, you know, I wouldn't say he was lit a lot of the time, but, <laughs> but he was, he was being happy. He was a happy guy. Hey, uh, nothing wrong with that. No, I don't think so. Either. I mean, he never harmed anybody. It was just, you know, right. he liked, he liked it. It was like, Hey, we're going to have, let's raise a good, but his brother was also a priest. And this, his brother was, uh, 
was killed in Rwanda. Oh wow! Mission. He was mar- he was martyred. He was. And was it during him. the whole? Yeah, um, yeah. He was like he was not situation. having it. He was not having it. He was like wow. protecting people, and he was killed. So you know, so these are so these are the priests. You know, so when I hear other people's stories, I understand them, and I don't believe. You know, I don't I like these people who deny, believe, or lie. I sure it happened because you've got you. Know, but I think that I was blessed that most of the, all the priests that I knew, and I'm talking about, yeah. uh, I, you know, never came across you know it never any you know, no issues with priests zero zero issues with priests as a matter of fact got to come it was astounding you know so i don't know uh, and i'm talking about not just in my parish but i spent some time in manhattan at st as st ignatius loyola and there was um a priest these were jesuits though there i did see some stuff because when i was in high school i remember i invited them because i you know these jesuits were you know i spent a lot of time with them I remember i was one of these kids who was kind of bought up in right. the church so most of my next things were around the church i'm involved in this i'm involved in that so i was down there so i was down in manhattan with some jesuits because the priests i had i don't know how it is in virginia but we had what are called archdiocesan priests which are not a particular i don't know what order i don't think they belong to an yeah, order. Um, yeah the diocese of richmond doesn't really have that so you just have diocesan priests and then you have priests that are in the order like oh. a uh, Benedictine. Or oh, okay, something. well, well, we have. I guess yeah. we had to say we had we had to do they with the archdiocese. That was giganti. Those guys were those. Yeah. But then I would go and I started spending a lot of time with Jesuits out of uh, uh, Fordham and you know University and right, places right, like that. Right. So they were there. So this was a really odd thing because I was the school I went to was an archdiocese and Catholic school. Mm-hmm. I remember one time I, I invited one of the priests, Father McGuire, to come and talk to us. And I'll never forget. This was a shocking thing to me as a kid. I'm like 16 years old. Our principal came with us, a priest, and he said, who invited these Jesuits in here? They're all communists. <laughs> oh, know, wow. Like, it was like a while, and I'm thinking, like, what? <laughs> it's like, what is going on? So he, even back then, the Jesuits were more uh, were leaning more liberal, even well, way think, back I, well, then? They had, they, they, the Jesuits were definitely liberal. I just think that the Jesuits have always been, you know, a different kind of, oh, yeah. you know, a different kind of, I mean, I think, look, my personal feast, I think, to a lot of the credit, because the Jesuits, I always felt as I got older, I thought the Jesuits were kind of like, um, like the CIA, in many respects. Hmm. They were like a That's religious CIA because if you really think about some of the stuff that they did, they were like, you know, with, within the Catholic Church. But I think within general, again, this is like my own fantasy stuff. But right, right. I think they were like special operators because they yeah. did. If you think about it, some of the stuff they did were not like the regular priests were doing i mean they yeah. were going out exploring they were going what was, was it st ignatius loyal I yeah mean, they, they went they, to china first yeah, they, they were in japan right. first and they were doing many places they were in california first right. and they were doing that. stuff that was in effect like the church had uh an intelligence arm because they knew the languages they were yeah. there they were so they weren't just with the sacraments these people were like observing and mm-hmm. a lot of times they were intermediaries for a lot of things so i think and, and then i understood why because as i learned history how in Spain, which was a, one of the first, you know, modern empires, you know, I'm not talking the Romans, born in modern empires. Right. I always used to, it was very odd because in Spanish culture, the first son was always a priest. They always had a priest. Okay, as the I first didn't son. know that. Yeah, the first son was a priest, the second son a soldier, and the third son a merchant. So if you had a lot of kids, your first son was going to be a priest. Hmm. That was it. Your second son will be a soldier, and your third son a merchant. I mean, I'm talking about this, the... The families, I want to say like that. Matter. The well-off. You know, the family, you know, that's what you know, they were. The wealthy family. The wealthy family, you know, so because you think, why would someone want their kid to be a priest? But then it hit me. The church, in my opinion, 
was the world's first multinational conglomerate. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, they were the first multinational conglomerate. They had branches everywhere, and they were everywhere. So it, it would stand to reason that if you're a well-off family, you want to be, you want one of your kids locked into the multinational yeah. conglomerate. That's the church. Because we'll have some sway over yeah, we'll political yeah. happenings, yeah, religious happenings. Every, all happenings, yeah. you know, because you've got, yeah. you know, your son's a priest, you know, and if to back that up, you got a son who's a soldier. So that, that makes got, sense. You know, but that was what, because I started noticing, why would you, you know, I mean, because now most people say, oh, you want to be a priest, there's no money, there's no, you know, but no, it's not an issue of money, it's an issue of reach back and power, you know. Yeah, you're, definitely. It's a, it, and I thought, yes, the church was a multinational conglomerate. Who else could be bigger than East India trading, whatever? They were all over the world yeah. in remote places that nobody else reached. It was like like McDonald's. You could have a priest. There's a priest there. Then the Vatican and the <laughs> church had you know, reached. They could reach That's the right. furthest. And they could speak the languages. And they had... And pressure intel. governments right, and yeah, everything. You know, so, so, so I thought it was good. Anyway, but that's yeah, sidebar. But right. So that, <laughs> but that's my, but that was my experience growing up. So then, then okay. after that, I went. You know, so I've always that's been an important uh, part of uh, stuff. It was good, and uh, you know, and we were all there, and that's it. So then I, the rest of it just became, like I said, became an engineer and made a decision that I wanted so, to run stuff. Yeah. So before we move on, you did a quick uh, kind of note in the overview about. Uh, one of the chief justices that you went to school with. Right. Did you uh, know her personally? Like, no, you I, have I any knew stories? Her, no, we were we were very close. Look, any stories I have, and again, she and I uh, uh, love her dearly. We're not of the same uh, political bent, but what I say to people, you know, because particularly there's so much partisan madness now, is that yeah, oh yeah, we don't agree, but I know that her heart is in the right place, right. She is not someone, you know, I respect her. Well, you we know did. her personally. Right. Well, you we, don't we did, right. You don't have to get mixed up in, right. well, she's on this no, side I'll, of the I'll, aisle, I'll, so I don't like I'll, her. I'll tell you an interesting story, though. I mean, by the first I knew her, we commuted to school together. Our families, uh, my, our grandparents knew each other, and so all of that. Two, two stories. The first story has to do with um, when we were kids, I ran her campaign for student government, president of student government. Oh, wow. And we lost. So every time we're kind of together, most often times she reminds people that I ran her campaign, she lost, and that's why she decided never to seek elective office. <laughs> so, <laughs> because and we should have won, but she also lets me off the hook sometimes because she said our major constituencies uh, came, used the subway, it was a major snowstorm, they couldn't get in time to vote. So <laughs> that so now she has a soft spot for voter suppression. Right. So, so that taught her about two things. A, she wasn't going to ever run for office again because it was too bad to lose. And secondly, voting is important and you have to watch out for voter suppression. The other part that was more recently, a couple of years ago, we were doing some stuff together at our high school. And she had just made a decision um, because she was part, it was in her in her district or her uh, southern, yeah, so in her district, she had made a decision uh, favoring the little sisters of the poor because Obama, okay. the Obama administration. I didn't know she was, yeah, the I Obama, didn't know she favored that. No, the, no, the Obama administration had wanted to think all of that, and she issued a stay telling them they can't mess with the little sisters of the oh, poor. Oh, okay. So she did. So it's funny, we're sitting at school, and all the nuns who taught her, they're all now old. He goes, oh, Sonia, we knew you were so good, and we knew you'd make the right choices. We're so happy. Right, to, right. To so then we're there, we're eating, because it's like a, it's a, it's like a, uh, an event, like a gala. So we're sitting there all the time. Oh, yes, sister, oh, yes. Oh, Sonia, I had you in my class. Because, oh, you learned so much. Oh, your values are so good. So anyway, they walk away, and she says to me, they love me now. 
spot. Because <laughs> there may be some decisions I'm going to have to make <laughs> that they ain't going to like very right. much. They're not going to be happy. <laughs> she said, but it was so funny because she says, Raph, they love me now. But I made that decision based on my understanding of the law. Right. It wasn't, and maybe they did teach me stuff, but it wasn't. The, but I hope they love me. It wasn't her personal she, feeling she, she of said, why she made she the said, decision. He goes, I, I think that there may be some decisions in the future that they're not going to like me very much. Yeah. So, but anyway. But that's what I'm trying to say, that I think she does what, uh, she's a good jurist. She's a smart woman. She's very smart. I mean, I remember, you know, we were in National Honor Society together. Uh, she uh, she was very disciplined, very studious. She was not a, a radical kind of person uh, very so you know i think i don't know where she's going what she's doing whatever but what i do know is well, she's that she's going to be a justice until right so the she's end, decides, right? So <laughs> no but i'm saying i'm saying in terms of what happens like the nuns thought is look i think uh, she she has a fortunately and i know people won't like this but fortunately we don't live in a theocracy right so you know which is a good thing um so she, the, and the law is she is there, in my opinion, to interpret the law to the best of her right. ability. And we'll have, you know, it is what it is. You, you know, have differing opinions right. about that. That's why you have <laughs> as many judges as we have. Right. Now. right. And so, so she's, but that's, that's, that's my story on her. I think she's, uh, I think she's an extraordinary person. Um, uh, just, I can't say enough good things about her. Oh, that's uh, good. You know, so, and, you know, and she's honest as the day is long. I mean, she's unbelievably honest, uh, integrity, uh, studious, uh, patient, um, you know, and, but you know, we're all human beings and yeah. And I think it's sad that we, a lot of times lose who the people are behind the politics and the ideology. So people can't just say, Oh, well, Joe Schmo, he's, he's a great guy. I just don't agree with him. I totally disagree with everything he says, but you know, I love him. Yeah, people no, don't want to do that anymore. I, and I think, you know, I think again, don't get me started because I think a lot of it has to, <laughs> right. a lot of it has to do with you know the way the news operates yes. and the way social media operates, and the fact that most people—I hate to say it—but most people are not very bright. So, yeah, unfortunately, and don't think very much because if they did, then they would understand those things. But you have people making judgments about all sorts of stuff based on social media and based on the news. And the news, the, the news media, I don't think it. I don't think it's ever been totally objective because, as you recall, um, even in the founding of this country, a lot of the things that were written in the, in the, in the contemporary news was basically people act with, gra- with access to grind. Right, right. You know, whether it's Well, time- they were the people who could afford to print a paper right. and pass it out to people. Right. You're not going to pass out a paper that you print it at your house unless you have an idea that you want. Right. What, what was it? Um, well, Thomas Paine in yeah, Common that, Sense. I mean, yeah. he was, a, you know, now he happened to be, uh, he happened to be right looking at backwards. But at the time, you know, that was pretty radical stuff to say. And he had, and he wasn't saying, well, basically, had he been fair, actually, had they been fair, they would have understood the British position. Right. Because the British, you know, because people... See, we we won, so it all becomes like codified into yeah. that we were right. Oh, of course. But what the British were speaking to was the fact that is, in order to keep French incursions from happening, mm-hmm. we, the British people and all of that, of which you are some, went to war to protect that. Right. Now it's time to pay for that war, 
and we're levying taxes and you guys, oh, no taxation without representation. No, this. <laughs> no they were you weren't saying that when we were sending armies to protect you and right. we were paying for all that. All that time is just send them, send them, send them because the French and the Indians are harassing us. Right. At that time, no one said, well, you know, let, let's, let's think of a collection and do it. Now that we have to pay, all of a sudden, nobody wants to pay. It's like everybody, well, yeah. so now it becomes freedom and no taxation. You certainly wanted red coats here when the French were coming. Right. It wasn't like, get the red coats out of here. So come. So what I'm saying is people never, and, and part of that is because you know, people in the U.S. really don't take the time to think very much. The average right. person, it's like this whole thing with um, with both pro and con on uh, on the statues and all that. Um, well, I won't say both sides are right because they're not. Uh, the issue is the issue of history is important. Yes, but even in revolutionary times, but history sometimes is what people make it be. So, for example, as well, we don't want to tear down, you know, let's say I'm, you know, of a certain persuasion, you know, some of a certain belief. Oh, I don't want to tear it down. It's a... Tearing stuff down. My answer is, you're absolutely right. We should keep it up. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to put a huge plaque that says, traitor. Right. So Because I think it's important. No, you shouldn't... We shouldn't forget what... What, what Robert E. Lee, what Robert E. Lee did, and what uh, Jackson did, we shouldn't forget that. You're right; we should keep it up, but not this Tara, you know, Scarlett O'Hara fantasy that was concocted later. Right. It's like put in Robert E. Lee, traitor. Uh, he and his people and his followers killed, and this is this is you want to talk history? Let's talk history. They killed more people than. Adolf Hitler, more, I'm sorry, they killed more American soldiers than Adolf Hitler, Tojo, um, Ho Chi Minh, General Jap, Osama bin Laden, and al Zakari put together. Right, because they're only killing Americans. Right, yeah, well, they killed, but I'm just talking, I'm not even talking about the Confederates, because they weren't, you know, they were rebels. I'm talking about, they killed 380,000. Union soldiers. Wow. Were killed. 380. The Vietnam, Ho Chi Minh killed 50, well, what was the murder? 20 death. to 30,000 uh, No, or more than like 52,000. 50,000? Okay. So something, like, uh, uh, approximately 60,000. Which 60, is a, fra- a tiny fraction. Fraction of what Robert E. Lee, Jackson, Hood, uh, you know, Pickett, all those, all those guys so did. Could, more importantly, if you're going to history and you want to learn your history, and, I, and I'm saying it, those people who are, who are fighting for that history, don't tear it down. I'm saying amen. That's, I think, the mistake of a lot of people, whether it's BLM or anything else, is that you're missing a major opportunity here because you should You're missing say, a teaching moment. Yeah, you're, no, you say you want history? Fine, let's, let's talk about history. And I even say to me, my personal feeling is, just to not make it a black-white issue, take slavery out of it. Take slavery out Forget slavery. Say, simply, simple this. If you're going into, you know, like a base, for example, you're an American service member. That base or that statue is named after someone who killed people exactly like you. Yeah. White people like you. Yeah. Not black people. White people like you. You know, so Union soldiers, U.S. Army soldiers. Not only that, but their leaders were U.S. Army officers. Went to West Point. Swore an oath to uphold the Constitution. Yeah. And talk about integrity. They said, Ixnay, I'm going out. Talk about people going with the mob or going with the rabble. Talk about, you know, you want to talk about um, Colin and, you know, kneeling for the National Anthem, which mm-hmm. is a whole other thing which, you know, we could talk about. But 
Collins, a piker, Collins, nothing compared to these guys took an oath to defend that right. flag and that. Yeah, yeah. And they, for no good reason, what's a good reason? Well, uh, you know, my state's good. Well, that's like a mob. Right. You know, that's like your your job was to protect it against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And domestic. They were domestic enemies. So you have no honor. Don't tell me you have honor. You took an oath. So, right. you know, that's it. So the issue is, and I don't think the people who, let me put it this way. You put up, you have the monuments, and you put that stuff on a monument. They'll be wanting to bring the monuments. Oh down. yeah, definitely. They'll, they'll want the monuments down though, because yeah. no, no, no. We want to continue, and if, and they want to live in a fantasy, they want right. this person to be some kind of hero, right. some kind of and, romantic, and, 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 tragic right, hero. Right. And frankly, they're not. I mean, they're you know even they 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 weren't. And look, I'm not gonna you know say string them up and hang them, though. That's what would have happened had the. North and had Lincoln not been. Oh yeah, had the South won, you know, it would have been a different. Yeah, it would have been a story. different story. So, so the issue is, so the thing is that look again, uh, that's that's my point on that. But um, so anyway, you were saying what's on on to next things? Yeah. So, um, so we are moving on kind of to the after school and well before we move on to that and maybe it will kind of stretch because so we're on the topic a little bit about the statues and the this and the that. So. Um, I did an interview with my grandmother um, of last year, and I asked her about racism. What asked? What did she experience? Any? And I got a surprising answer. I don't know if you've heard that podcast, but she pretty much said that she didn't have any experience, not many experience with racism. She lived right here in Virginia. She was a farmhand basically until she became a janitor, and um, or and a housekeeper. But uh, she said she didn't really have any experience with racism. She got along with everybody. And there was one incident when she worked at a public school. And that was it. Uh, it just blew my mind because they teach us, you know, I'm, I'm you know, um, I don't I guess millennial. I don't know how they figure out those generations, but I'm quite younger. I didn't have to experience any of that, really. In Virginia, by the time I was coming up, there wasn't any racism. It was not that I saw. Um, so it, it was it blew my mind to hear her say that she didn't experience any either. When they taught us in school, everything was racist, all racist all the time. So, you know, all my intro, the point I'm trying to get at is what uh, experience did you have with racism, if any, and why would that be like surprising maybe to younger people? Was it the classic idea or maybe you didn't, no, you know, no, have no, something look, different? Look, I definitely think there definitely was substantial racism and I'll tell you, but I'll tell you one of the explanations why a lot of people claim, uh, or a lot of people didn't experience, I'm not saying claim, but did in fact not experience is because they were experiencing it in a larger universe. What I mean okay. by that, which is why, what are the things that desegregation, by the way, let me just go on record, lest anyone twist my words. It's that horrible stuff should never happen and all of that. But what it did for people was the same thing that it did for Jewish people in the ghettos right. back in, you know, in Europe. Mm -hmm. What happened is people tended to live in an enclave. And right. within that enclave, there, it was definitely present, which forced the enclave. But within the enclave, they could live their daily lives without being... Uh, humiliated, uh, you know, harassed. Right, like you whatever. have an Irish part of, you have right. a Irish part of town, a black right. part of town, Puerto right. Rican. So, so that, so basically, the what they said that they didn't experience it. That was part of it. The other part, and again, it's not. Oh, I see what it, you're saying. It's not new. It's it's because, as I said, a very crisp example for a thousand years. 
has been the Jewish people in terms of the ghettos. That's right. where the term ghetto comes from. In Warsaw and different places, they just lived within themselves and 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 had very strict protocols for how to deal with the majority. So therefore, you live within if you're growing up or what have you, then uh, you have, you know, black small businesses, you know, I mean, I'm talking Hispanic, but let's take one, black small businesses, black barbershops, black, you know, black shoemakers, black right. department stores, all within your thing. And when they would extend outside, there were very strict protocols. Like they knew not to go here, not to go there. So it is clearly racism, but it's, it is so, they, they talk about it today, which they're full of it. It's nothing. It was so systemic and so institutionalized that it, to some extent, insulated the people from the more from the worst parts of it. Oh, interesting. You know, so, it's, so in other words, it was definitely racist, absolutely, positively. But people developed methods of doing so that it would not rise. It would not. It's almost like greasing the skids, right? So life could go smoothly. Without so within that system. Right. So, basically. for example, more recently, you know, that movie, The Green Book, mm-hmm. you know, it, that was clearly racist. But they knew these are the hotels you could stay at. These are the water fountains you could drink from. These are the places in the bus you could sit. Right. Once that happens, that's clearly racist. But but what happens is the person living it stops perceiving. Stop. It is like the sun. It is so bright that you forget that you know. It's not. It's it stops being right. there. It's it just, is it is there. That's just but it life. stops being exactly. It just becomes. It's just life. What um, what's made it? And by the way, that also led to the rise of mass movements. It's a similar thing. Is because what happens, um, at what happens um to a mass movement? There's a guy by the name of Eric Hoffer. He wrote a book, The True Believer. It's a book that I think everybody should read. It's a small book, but the guy is brilliant. And what he says is that. People revolt Mm -hmm. or join a mass movement, not because they join it because of frustration, not because things are bad. It's not because, but because and here and here's what he said. One of his base things was he talked about poor people. Real, he said to me, he said that is a lie. Poor people never revolt. There has never been a revolt with poor people ever. Mm -hmm. Because if you look, because he said, uh, particularly, he says it determines how you define poor. And I remember because I read this book in sixth grade. Okay. I was very fortunate. Um, and he said, if I can remember the quote, it goes, the poor on the borderline of starvation live purposeful lives. Right. To go to bed with a st- full stomach is a major victory. They have no need for super inspirational goals because they're just trying to survive. Right. So he says, and he talks about it as someone called the abjectly poor. Those are the real poor. He goes, the people who revolt are, he said, most revolutions take place when things are improving or when things are getting better. And he said the following, he said, people are more frustrated when they seem to lack but one thing than when they lack everything. So he says, and he says, he says, if you are, he goes, people are more energized, more angry Mm -hmm. when they have almost everything they want as opposed to when they have nothing. Right. And the reason is because when they have nothing, he, he, postulated, he postulated. So when they have nothing, they don't know what it is to have something. Right. So they're not frustrated. They got nothing. They figure if I can, if I can survive today, I'm all, I'm ahead of the game. Yeah. Because if, if I could just get a morsel to eat, I am the happiest guy in the world. However, once a person has almost everything, 
then what frustrates them the most is that last thing. Mm -hmm. And he says that frustration is greater. Both moving and, for, for example, someone who's been rich and then becomes poorer or poor is more frustrated than someone who's never had anything. You'd think right. they wouldn't be saying, because they know what it's like to have something. Right. The same thing was as you're getting closer to having more, the more you have, the more you want. And even if you think about it, there is philosophical, biblical stuff to it, because one of the problems which led to the great downfall to original sin was you have everything except that. That last thing is yeah. becomes the most important thing because you have everything. You want that. Perfection would be when I get that fruit that last thing when i get that fruit then so it's not even a matter of being coming like god it's because people that's one way to look at the other look at it is that i've got everything except that i want that because right. i don't have that whereas opposed to let's say the garden of eden had been a desert you know would have been you know happy as heck yeah <laughs> you know if someone said i'm going to give you a pear but you can't have the apple Done. <laughs> That's a deal. I'll do that deal every day because I don't got nothing. Right. So if right. I get that pear, I'm, you know, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna leave. Apple? What apple? I don't see an apple. I right. just see this pear, and I'm gonna take this pear. I'm gonna hide this thing. This is gonna be my pear. Don't touch my pear. But that's the thing. I think that. Uh, so that's what. I, so I think talking about racism. Let's get back to. I was. Digressing. Oh yeah. That's um, fine. I think that's what happened. I think people, you know, they were just happy they weren't being lynched. You know, so right, as far as, right. and they and they were happy getting three males. You know, uh, no one's telling me what to do in general. With you know, if you're close to slavery, if you, if you still have ancestors who remember that, I figure well, at least now I got my own house, I got my own little it's a shack, but it's mine. You know, however, so humble, but it's mine. Right, and I can walk around and I can go to sleep right now, or I can wake up tomorrow and I'm doing a little sharecropping here or whatever. But you know. Nobody's telling me to do it. I'm doing it because if I share crap a little more, share crap a little more, maybe I'll get to keep more. And yeah, I can't go to the movie theater. Maybe I can. I got to sit in a balcony. But you know what? They still remember when stuff was really oh, sucked. Okay. So that so, makes a lot of so sense. So they don't see it. In other words, it's there and it's happening. But instead of looking for what I'm missing, they look for how much I've got. By the way, I don't believe that's right. So let's go on a six. Oh, he thinks no. I don't think it's right. But you asked me to explain how someone yeah, could go. Yeah, because I you know, couldn't you know, understand. No, no, that that's definitely yeah. not right. By the way, the safety cap is in all sorts of stuff. Communists, when the Berlin Wall came down a few years later, people were saying, "This stinks. Why don't we just have? I wish you know, communist party would come back to power. Right. Why? Well, part of it was because before they were." carving out little niches, they knew the well was stable for them. They knew, you know, there used to be a saying, uh, they, what did they say? They says, the Russians would say, we pretend to work and they pretend to pay us. Because, mm. you know, they were drinking vodka. That, that's how stuff wasn't productive in a right. communist system. We pretend to work, they pretend to pay us, and everyone's happy and everyone knew what their place was. Right, right. Again, just for the record, I'm not saying that that is right. Right. That's correct. But I'm just saying you asked for an explanation. Of why. Now, personally, for me personally, um, let me think. Um, I think the same thing was for people who grew up in my time and the same thing. And by the way, I was born a week after Brown versus the Board of Education. So how did my parents do? Well, they didn't send us, they didn't care about the schools because we were, they, they scrimped the state to send us to parochial schools. Uh, I lived in a neighborhood that was all basically blacks and Puerto Ricans because all of the white people were moving out, you know? So, you know, and I didn't notice that. Uh, yes, they were redlining, I'm sure uh, there was, uh, because my father actually 
didn't do badly. You know, he was an engineer and also he right. worked for NASA, so he could have moved somewhere, but I don't think they would let us move. But see, I didn't experience that. Right. My parents might experience, but I think even in their experience, they wouldn't have known it as much because they were, you know, immigrants first, you know, so they didn't really understand what might have been happening. Whereas, right, right. you know, it wasn't, you know, I think, that's, you know, my father worked in Long Island. He wanted to move to Long Island, but I don't think we could move to Long Island. I think he could afford it, but it was always some hiccup or something happened. Mm. So I don't think that he understood it. Maybe he did and just didn't convey it, but I didn't experience it. I didn't see right. it. And then in school, you know, in school, I went most of the time, for example, parochial schools were generally the schools for working class, you know, the private schools for working class people. So I oh, did okay. go with white people and all of that. Uh, but they were basically, you know, uh, for example, where I went to school, nobody who I went to school with, if they were transported magically, could afford to live there at all. None. Oh, wow. Because I went to school, for example, where I, where I went to school, the school I went to, when I was in second grade, I saw Sloan Kettering get built, the big cancer Mm -hmm. research place because I went to school my school was on 68th street and first avenue between first and york avenue in new york in those days they were most of the buildings were, were they were called railroad flats they were like just one step above a tenement okay. they were like five four walk-ups you know you no elevators or today all high rises right where right. you know all high rises a studio is three thousand a month all doormen. I mean, all they knock. So the people there were basically working class, Irish, Italian, Puerto Rican, whatever. And, you know, and generally, to be honest, um, I guess it wasn't like the South. There, were, there, there was racism, but to right. say in terms of experience, it wasn't experienced the way. And I think it had to do with the entire culture was a certain way. First, so, for example, I remember being a little kid. There were still a lot of Jewish people in the neighborhood. Right. And in particular, uh, I remember the little Jewish old ladies and whatever would pull out lawn chairs and sit in front of the buildings. Mm -hmm. And they were not shy about telling you what to do. And I don't mean from a racist standpoint, just, you know, I'm going to tell your mother and, you know, that kind of stuff. So, so it was a different world and today, you know, it was, it was just different. And look, I don't think that, um, you know, let me put this way. Would they have wanted me to marry their daughter or something? I'm I I probably I would tend to think not. Yeah. So, but I think a lot of it had to do with their own, uh, because a lot of my like my friends were Jewish friends, Irish friend, whatever you know, ran together, you know, and and you know, so so that was it. I'm trying to think. Um, yeah, I think that, and a lot of stuff was was could have been said, mm -hmm. but it wasn't. You know, it was just. Like stuff, I, I think. To, I think today, however, because of frustration, those people, um, rightfully so, uh, want feel that some of that structural stuff right. should go away. And I think that it's. I think that that's true. Because let me give you an example. Um, the reason police departments were um, had the problems they had even when I was growing up was because people didn't. Uh, the police department, at least in New York, was a family business. I mean, oh. it, was, it was a family business. Most police officers were Irish. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, most police officers were Irish. Even today, the, the guy who heads it up is Irish. And, and it was like, basically, um, that's where racism uh, took a lot of stuff. But I think it also had to do with 
where they were coming from. I'm not trying to excuse it, but where they were coming from. Because one of the reasons that with that was because that was the only jobs they could get right. 50 years before. Right. You know, so that was... That because was there the, was racism against well, or, 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 or ethnic or, you know, right. So that was part of it. So uh, to all the cops were all, oh, this and all that, O'Brien and whatever. If right, you ever right. look at, if you look at movies in the 50s, you'll see most of the cops are Irish. And the reason for that is because that was the job they could get. And like, if I became a cop, then I knew it was a good job. It's a civil job. I'm going to get a pension. So my son, hey, you know, Johnny, once you're out of school, you know, we'll take you up. You go over, take the, go to the academy, take the exam. And, you know, right, and right. so people were helping. Same thing happened in a lot of the construction trades where there was a lot of Italians and stuff in terms of the artists and stuff because they were, so they kind of locked it up. And they did, they did exclude blacks and Hispanics. There's no doubt about it. They definitely excluded them. I think, um, I think it was race, but I think it wasn't just race alone. I think it was also economic advance and just the fact that people tend to um, to congeal along or oh, concert yeah. along who you know. It, look, what do they always say? It's not it's not who what you know, but who you know. That's right. That's and right. black people, because of the thing of slavery and, and all of uh, and that institution, that kept them from knowing the right people. Right. That right. kept them from knowing the right people. It just did. That was just, and then it was race. So it's not because, for example, that's how come I think today people tend to focus on on the wrong things. Is not that race is racist. Race is a factor, yes. but in many cases, it's not the factor. Right. Because if it was the factor, I mean, like I say to people today, if you are a white kid mm-hmm. coming into the music business, I think if other, absent Nashville. I mean, if you want to like Marnie, you went to hip hop. There's an issue there, you know. You know, right. you know, unless you're, you know, uh, Marsh Eminem or whatever. You know, there's an issue there because yeah. some of the gatekeepers, who they know, what they know, some of the gatekeepers are not, you know. And that's one thing. Similarly, similarly, um, and there's excuses for that. If you look at, you know, the National Basketball, the NBA. Right. I mean, there have been, you know, it's and and again, I'm not. Saying, one could argue, you know, one could argue racism. I don't think it could be argued very well. But no. but the but I'm saying it's like someone could say, well, you know, maybe you guys should make some room for white players. Right. We should get a, <laughs> we should get points. We should. And now people say, well, it's it's one little thing that we got. Now you're you know I'm I'm just saying, look at it, step back for a second and look at it. And say someone could say, well. We didn't get a good shot. We didn't get to play. You know, yeah. you got you have friends. You know, people coached you, told you where to go. Well, yes, we had expensive goods, but we didn't get the bed. There's, there's some. I mean, this is really twisted. But I'm saying someone could say, I think that we should be able to take our three pointers should be like not from that distance. Or, oh yeah, you, know, I think you we, can argue anything. You know, no, really? No, no, but I, but I want to try to say is that. Uh, and by the way, again, there there is racism. And I think it should be fixed, but I think people are going to have to take a multi, multi-modal approach to it. That it's yes. not that it's simply not to say, you know, that it's race. It's then you have to create a situation where the linkages, the social linkages, are made, so that uh, that's one of the reasons why I believe that, and I think it should fight strongly for it. Is if you're going to do housing issues, then your housing issues, I think projects have shown not to work well. Yeah, absolutely. So therefore, everyone you have to, could agree with so that. So you have to put so you have to put the houses so that you whether people like it or not sprinkle it amongst other communities. Yes. Such yes. that it's not because basic is your, you know, everybody's got the same problem, 
then you're just amping it up. They can't make the connections. The right. only connections they can make, and most of the world, it, most of the world's about connections. That's for example, for for example, when you see places that have done it fairly well, though I don't think perfectly, but like the armed forces, yeah, where you know where basically people, you know, once once it was desegregated, and then you know you have you have a bureaucratic structure. Where if you meet the following criteria, it doesn't matter who you are, you're going to generally get it. Right, right. And then once certain people get it, they also have contacts that now they have people who are helping other people get it. And, you know. Yeah, in, the uh, people who are in your unit. The right. people who were uh, right. above you. Right. Uh, yeah, because yeah, I was in the Marines and some people who were in my unit tried to say, oh, this, this person got promoted because they're white or whatever. But. I just didn't see it. I'm like, well, maybe they just kissed that guy's butt. Right. And, <laughs> and you don't want to do that right. because of your upbringing. Neither right. do I. Right. Exactly. Maybe, it, maybe the way they were brought up. Right. Kissing butt's cool. Right. right. No, so for me, I, it felt like because I got a lot of commendations and promotions right. and things like that, I didn't really have any issues. There are a couple of guys that didn't like me, but I'm like, maybe they don't like me because because of me right, right that's maybe right. not it's not because i'm black maybe right. the way i talk the way i you know right, yeah just general, or, or just or, or just they're assholes <laughs> or that too <laughs> but i noticed that if you put in the work you are gonna get i mean the right. military that's how it is no it's that's what they, 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 no by the way in a lot of places that's what it is and you know and it's, you know it's just you gotta make it happen man and that's and and i think that's the other part that they have to tell kids that you know Nothing is instantaneous, and it takes discipline, and it yes. takes work. Yes. So, so we're coming up on fifty-three minutes. Yeah. So, so, uh, um, so I guess we can go into the later years, or if uh, you want. I mean, no, the later years. I mean, it, it's been good. I, 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 perf I worked, perfected my craft. You know, in terms of software design and the rest. Uh, roast through, observed, had uh, was very fortunate because a lot because I was. The other thing for me was I was fortunate to be born in the mid fifties because I was able to ride the tech wave. Right. See, had I been born earlier, couldn't have done it, be, you know, later the wave would have already passed. It would have been over. Yeah. It would have been over. Even though there's a new wave with, you know, another wave becomes like surfing, you know, a next wave is right, coming. Right. And I uh, could have picked up on that one. But for me, it was great because I was on the, uh, pretty much on the first wave mm -hmm. of, of tech and that allowed it because basically one of the things I would say is not too many people have experienced this. So an inexperienced guy could go far because if someone said the first race of microprocessors, uh, and I'll show you some of the ones I had when they say, well, you know, how many years experience? I have about 18 months. No one could say, well, I've got five, 10 years experience because right. it was only, it didn't exist 18 months ago. So it leveled the playing field. It's right, one of the right. rare times when the playing field is leveled. So it doesn't matter if you studied and worked and, you know, perfected your craft, nobody could beat you because there was nobody. That's, those are the areas. That's one of the things I think with technology today that in terms of people of color and whatever, is instead of majoring in a lot of sociological stuff and try to write the world that way, is make some money. So there's stuff that's coming out that you got to jump on that yeah. when it arrives. So you're among the first people there because that's what makes it, that is the whole difference for me. For me, the whole difference was that I got there the way I was paddling out. And when I turned around and put my board, the wave was coming. So I was able to jump on that wave and ride wow. that baby as far as I could. And that was it. That was a luck part of it. But again, I, and then I think I'll close so we can close it up. But um, and I always say that I am unbelievably lucky. But, and I would like to take this, that people have to understand that luck is the residue of hard work and good planning. Right. right. Meaning that you get lucky or you're able to get your luck when you work for it. Last example, even is a joke I heard about luck. And someone said it was a very righteous, religious 
saintly person, I think I told you this once before, who said, uh, God, if I could win the lottery, I would just do so much more, you know, to advance the faith and to do really good works. Many years pass, and he's still doing good work, taking care of poor people, evangelizing, just going out there, being a real, you know, really living, you know, the faith. And he says, God, if, if I could win the lottery, I mean, I really want to do more good work. This right, is not enough. Right. I don't feel. He keeps on. Finally, because he says, again, now he's been doing this for 40 years, really great work. And he says, God, if I could win the lottery, I, would, I just want to do such good work. Then all of a sudden, the voice comes out of heaven and says, buy a ticket. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so the thing is, you know, you could be luck. You could get lucky. You gotta yeah. get, buy the ticket. I can't you make it. You gotta make the first move. <laughs> you know, I can't make it happen for you. Right. <laughs> and luck and the same thing. So so that's what I learned. Anyway. So, so yeah, we're gonna close it out. But real quick, did you want to talk about any did you wanna leave it kind of nebulous or did you wanna talk about any of the business ventures or things that you're involved in now or you, you know what, well, right, right now i'm really other than you know my the get my boat stuff which is the world's largest boat rental marketplace and it's doing very well and happy about that now what i'm trying to do is do more stuff with people around me people like you and others so i'm setting right. up a, a infrastructure because i do believe that um media is huge and we could do a lot of stuff in media right and media doesn't require tremendous amounts of capital just your talent your intellect and all of that mm -hmm. and i always liked i always gravitated to things that didn't require a lot of capital that you could do very that basically it um you you could leverage it by how much how hard you worked on your craft and that's and i think that we have an opportunity to really do that because i think there is a need for for different kinds of media right, and I right. think that guys like you Sean for example so I'm very keen to work with you and with several other people who are around to make those kinds of things happen sounds so. good any last words last people you want to shout out last no, well words. you know uh, you know to all all, all of uh, the what is it the Kaysen Velez Baez <laughs> Carlo Diaz families out there that they should uh you know, listen to the Shalom Kaysen show. There's a lot, of, <laughs> lot, of, a lot, of, a lot, of, a lot of learning, a lot of teaching going on there. So that leaves us with uh, the top of the hour, I guess. All right, great. So this was the Shalom Kaysen show with Raf Colado. And normally, like I said, we do mental prayer on here, but maybe I'll be putting some more interviews uh, in the future. So just make sure you subscribe and share and uh, continue to frequent my shows and podcasts and all that good stuff until next time stay holy my friends